Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. Where are your hosts? Ambassador retired Harry K. Thomas. And I'm the Chief Alex Morales. Uh, retired. Uh, Harry, who do we have today? Uh, today we have General Al- Alfonso Linhart, retired U.S. Army, former Ambassador of Tanzania, as well as Deputy USAID Administrator, and a proud graduate of the University of Nebraska. <laughs> hey, sir, thank you for taking the time. Welcome to the spotlight, sir. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Go ahead, Harry, take us up. Well, General, please tell our listeners about your childhood in New York City and the influence your parents and the city had on your life. Well, that's a tall order, uh, Henry, starting out. uh, I will tell you that uh, childhood had a great influence on me, and it was my, um, it formed the underpinning of my life's work. I was born in uh, Harlem, which is in uh, Manhattan, uh, New York City. Um, Spent the first 13 years of my life in uh, Harlem. Uh, Harlem was, uh, at that time, uh, coming out of just finishing up the Harlem Renaissance uh, with uh, all the notable authors, Black authors and musicians and artists of one description or another. So it was an environment that uh, was rich with culture, was rich with people who cared a lot about the young people. And so that, that, that expression is often used uh, about it takes a village. Well, in Harlem, we had a number of people who looked after us as youngsters. Uh, I had uh, two brothers and a sister. My mom was a, a single parent and she reared us and she kept us uh, certainly on the straight and narrow. We spent a a lot of our time in the church, we spent time in the Boy Scouts, we spent time in, as acolytes in the church. We did a number of things, uh, all focused on preparing for a successful future. And so I credit that beginning as uh, something that uh, I, the foundation for the rest of my life. We moved from uh, Harlem uh, when I was 13 down to the Lower East Side, the melting pot of New York City, um, where it was a Jewish neighborhood, but uh, we also had Italian, Little Italy uh, comes to mind, uh, which is uh, certainly well known, uh, Chinatown. Uh, we had a number of other cultures that were rich in their influence on me. Uh, I finished um, both uh, junior, gradu- uh, junior high school as well as uh, graduated from high school there on the Lower East Side. And so that was a, um, a great opportunity for me to get a picture of the wealth of the country, the cultures that uh, formed much of America. And it was all very positive uh, for me. Uh, I can't say enough about how often I've used uh, that experience as my touchstone moving forward and anything I wanted to do in life. Oh, wow. Hey, sir, 
What a what a difference from New York City to University of Nebraska. What makes you chose that? <laughs> well, it was a, a circuitous route. Um, I didn't choose Nebraska per se. Um, what happened was uh, I got married. I was uh, attending Pace University, and I had a deferral uh, because of my uh, university from the draft. Um, in 1965, I dropped out of uh, the uh, fall semester in order to get married to my uh, gorgeous bride. And what I didn't know that when I didn't sign up for the fall semester in 1965, that there was such a close relationship and uh, partnership between the registrar's office of the university and the draft board. And so we got married on the 2nd of October, 1965, and on the 10th of October, 1965, I had a draft notice. And so uh, my wife, of course, was quite distraught and uh, all manner of things. What do we do? What do we do? And I said, well, I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to go into service. So on the 5th of November, 1965, I was in the Army. Uh, I reported down to uh, um, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Oh, <laughs> so, um, that's uh, that's where I was. But uh, by the time I had uh, received that draft notice and reported to the Army, I was a rising junior in college. And so as I uh, got to Fort uh, Jackson and took the battery of tests, the Armed Forces Vocational Aptitude Battery of uh, tests that uh, they administer, um, Someone said, well, this fellow has scored um, sufficiently high enough that uh, let's uh, see if he would be interested in officer candidate school. Oh, wow. Whereupon I said, no, <laughs> I'm going to do my two years and I, I'm out of here. <laughs> well, uh, they, had other, they had other ideas. And so uh, you don't say no to the Army, at least in those days. And so they, they put the great squeeze on me. And so I had more... Uh, people who were uh, trying to correct this uh, young recruit uh, in more ways than uh, you can imagine. I did more push-ups and sit-ups and uh, <laughs> runs and everything else, all of which was to demonstrate that no one says no in the Army. <laughs> so I, I got to the point where I said, now, wait a minute, no, uh, I've got these sergeants who are just making my life miserable. If I go to officer candidate school, become an officer, all of a sudden, I'm senior to them, and so I get my uh, I get my get evens. <laughs> well, that's what inspired me to go to Officer Candidate School. Of course, when I mentioned that to my my wife, that uh, it would require another commitment of uh, two years, uh, she went ballistic, and uh, you know the world had come to an end. I said, "No, it'll be okay. Uh, I'll get through it, and um, you know we'll." Uh, start our life together uh, following the Army. So I went to OCS and uh, came out a second lieutenant. And um, there um, went to uh, Vietnam. Uh, I went to volunteer for Vietnam because I had my, uh, my younger brother uh, was uh, an enlisted soldier. He, had, he too had been drafted. And so the policy was if uh, you had one family member in a combat zone, uh, Can that have was the enough. other one, yes. And so everyone else, uh, you know, uh, was, uh, you know, a pass. Uh, I had, uh, as I mentioned, I had two brothers. Uh, the other brother was already in Vietnam. He volunteered. He was a Marine. And so there, there was no getting around that. He, uh, 
you know, he wanted to uh, prove himself and uh, he, uh, he had six months to do by the time I got to Vietnam, he finished his six months. And so we saved our kid brother uh, from having to go to Vietnam. Uh, I finished Vietnam, came back. Uh, unfortunately, I was wounded. And um, at the time I was in the infantry, uh, infantry platoon leader. And later on, uh, during my tour there, I became a company commander. Uh, company commander of uh, 252 enlisted soldiers, and uh, we uh, fought during uh, the Tet Offensive. We fought through a number of uh, other uh, campaigns in Vietnam, uh, much of which is in the history books at this point. Um, but when I got wounded, um, I was reclassified because of my wounds, uh, because of my physical wounds, and so I was given a choice between uh, military police, um, the adjutant general corps, or quartermaster. And so I, choo- I chose uh, military police because it was the one branch that had, uh, you know, a close um, connection with soldiers. And so that's how I uh, started my career in the military police corps. Um, but before I could do all that and stay in the Army, because they were um, at the point where we had more officers than were needed. And so they were attriting a number of officers uh, because uh, there was a, an abundance. So I went to the University of Nebraska at the uh, urging of uh, the Army to finish my degree. Uh, I needed at that point uh, about a year, a year and a half. And so that's how I got to uh, Nebraska. It's uh, a bit circuitous, uh, but uh, <laughs> you asked the question and uh, you know, there is no easy, um, you know, responses uh, to a career in the Army because there's always something that uh, one uh, pulls on or affects one's life to the point where it's not easy necessarily, uh, the answer. It's not a yes or no. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, Al, we can see your purple heart, and we salute you for that right behind your shoulder. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. I, I'm sorry. This is the only spot I got in my – I'm going to – Now, that's great. That's great. People need to know what you achieved on our behalf. But next question is, how does the military prepare its leaders? Uh, Great question. During a career in the military, uh, the focus is on professional development. And so there are various plateaus based on the rank that uh, you, uh, you hold. And so at the young uh, lieutenant level, there is what's called the Office of Basic Course. And so that's where you get your underpinning as to uh, the Army, uh, the regiment of uh, yeah, affiliation in the Army, and there are a number of regiments in the Army. I won't go into that because they're so numerous. Um, and you learn basic officership. You learn leadership. You learn how to prepare yourself, how to lead a group of uh, men and women. Uh, At the next level, it's company command. And so you go to what's known as the career course. And that's the course that prepares you. Each of these courses, by the way, a minimum of six months to a year. Uh, So you go through that program, uh, or at least that company level, um, as um, as a captain. The next opportunity is when you go to the Command and General Staff College as a major, a field grade. Uh, following that, you go to uh, another level uh, as a uh, 
senior uh, officer, lieutenant colonel or colonel at the War College. My point in all of that is to say this, that the Army prepares its officers. And so of a uh, 30, nearly 31-year career in the Army, I spent seven years in various schools of one description or another. Professional development courses, career courses. Um, the Army sent me for two master's degrees uh, based upon what uh, they had for me, uh, assignments at West Point as um, a tactical officer, also as an instructor. And so a lot of training, a lot of effort, a lot of cultivating is poured into an officer by the time uh, one reaches the rank of, say, colonel. And um, if you're lucky enough and uh, to become a general, be selected for general, uh, there's additional training for that as well. So when I was selected for promotion to brigadier general, I had another two and a half years of training and schools to look forward to. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow, sir. Did, did you did you did you ever expect that to become a GO? Uh, uh, now, now I, I'm often asked that question. The answer is no. Short answer is no. Um, it's it's like um, lightning striking. You know, you never know when it's going to happen. Uh, the best thing you can do uh, is to prepare yourself for whatever opportunities uh, to look that you might uh, that might come your way. I never set out to become a general. Uh, that was something that uh, happened as a result of my you know, simply doing the job. I have an expression, uh, moreover a maxim, bloom wherever planted. Uh, do the best you can wherever you are. Prepare yourself for the opportunities that will come your way. And in fact, opportunities come your way all the time. And so where that opportunity presents itself and you ha are prepared for it uh, through hard work and you know, uh, ensuring that you have the qualifications, you step up. So I never set out to become a general. Uh, it was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, uh, my wife and I, uh, we had agreed that at any point in time where the Army uh, ceased to be fun and we didn't think we were making a contribution, I was prepared to get out. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back in the spotlight with General Lenhar. Go ahead, Harry. Al, what are your expectations for Secretary of Defense Austin? Uh, great question. Uh, I will tell you that uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is a friend and someone I've known for, for decades now. Um, I was a tactical officer at West Point. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, Lloyd had just graduated, but I had an opportunity to meet him as a young second lieutenant going out to the field. Oh, wow. My expectations is that he's going to uh, bring the department uh, back to a level of professionalism and uh, certainly pride that it had uh, prior to this uh, last um, administration. Uh, This last administration did a lot of harm to the military, uh, to its uh, image, uh, to the reputation. Moreover, Uh, it uh, created a lot of turmoil with personnel changes and a lot of... um, self-serving actions that uh, Lloyd is going to have to, uh, he's going to have to mend. And uh, he's going to also have to reach out to our allies around the world and reestablish those vital connections. Uh, I think he will do a good job of that. He is equipped. uh, He is professional. uh, He understands the business and he understands basic uh, soldiering, whether or not uh, that soldiering takes place in the Marines, the Army, uh, the Navy, or, or the Air Force. Uh, soldiering is a term that uh, basically says it's, it's about professionalism. It's about uh, the, uh, the combat arms, brothers in arms. Lloyd understands that. I mean, he's also um, quite adept at reaching out to uh, the um, civilian partners, industry, uh, that uh, provides uh, the resourcing uh, equipment uh, to the military. So I expect a lot from Lloyd. Uh, he's a man that's up to it, and uh, he'll, he'll reestablish uh, the excellent credit and uh, certainly a professional image of the military and get the politics out of the Department of Defense. And that's a wow. tall order uh, based upon what has happened, what took place over... <laughs> A period of a short period of four years, but uh, he's got uh, he's got the medal, and he understands how to do that. Hey, sir, I want to go back to uh, uh, you becoming a GO, and uh, uh, it's something I always 
admire when minorities and Hispanic, uh, African-American leaders, uh, what do you think minorities should do to reach those higher echelon in the military? Well, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, uh, I mentioned it earlier. It, do the best you can wherever you are and prepare yourself and be serious about your work. Uh, it's about keeping your head in the game. It's about paying attention and it's about selflessness. Um, I never, as I mentioned earlier, I never thought about the next rank. It was always doing the best job I could wherever I was. And I was in some pretty, uh, you know, I had a few lousy assignments, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> places that uh, certainly we didn't want to be. I didn't want to be. Um, but uh, I turned those into opportunities simply by doing the job. And so for minorities today, Um, one of the things that uh, we're seeing is that minorities uh, aren't coming to, uh, to the armed forces nearly as much as I recall uh, during my career. Minorities now have other choices, and they are exercising uh, those other choices. They're going into other industries. They're going into other careers. And so the military has to do a, a job, a better job, in my opinion, of making a concerted effort to bring minorities in and keeping them in. But in order to do that, you've got to make it, you've got to make it attractive so that they want to stay. They want to make it a career. Uh, but I will say this. The military is not right for everyone, and everyone is not right for the military. It something that it takes a degree of professionalism, um, a mature uh, examination of one's uh, goals in life, and making that, that commitment. And it's not easy. So from that standpoint, minorities, uh, much like anyone else for that matter, uh, you know, it's, it's one where you have to make that decision for yourself. But Great. I, I'm sure this also The opportunities are there. Whether or not you want to avail yourself of them is another issue. But the opportunities are there. Um, is it easy? Uh, the answer is no. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, there is no bed of roses. Um, you'll encounter um, personalities who will stand in your way. Uh, you'll encounter uh, parts of the institution that you wonder How is that possible in this day and age uh, that uh, this, um, you know, degree of discrimination exists? I will tell you that the, the military, though, is better than the society as a whole. Uh, but is there um, vestiges of um, institutional racism as it is in the society? The answer is yes. Um, I'm sure I'll be challenged on that in many ways, and I can explore that more, but uh, that's the reality. And anytime you've got um, individuals, personalities who come to the equation with uh, their own baggage, their own points of view, uh, you're going to get uh, you know, some degree of um, bias, some degree of uh, people doing things the way they want, or for that matter, agendas that are not uh, the most um, legitimate or proper. 
Well, go ahead, Harry. <sighs> Wonderful answers. After the military, you were the COO at the Council on Foundations. What were your duties? Well, that's uh, that's uh, when I retired. I wanted to do something totally different than what I had been doing in the military, namely um, security at the high levels, uh, looking at uh, the world's strategic uh, planning and doing the things that I did in the military. I want to do something totally different. And so I I looked at the field of philanthropy and I said, well, that looks interesting. Let's see what that's all about. And I had someone who uh, made a recommendation to me and I, uh, was hired by uh, Dot Writings, who was the uh, CEO of the Council on Foundations. And she wanted someone who would uh, basically run it for her, run the organization while she was the outside uh, face, uh, connecting with um, the philanthropic uh, foundations of one description or another. And oh, by the way, there, there are some 30-odd thousand various types of philanthropic foundations in the United States, everything from family foundations to uh, corporate giving programs to community foundations to private foundations. And so all of which is to say that uh, they make a wonderful contribution, not only to uh, within uh, America, our our borders, but they also reach around the world. And so there are, Billions of dollars that are spent to improve uh, conditions for humankind around the world and the environment, obviously. So I, uh, I ran the organization. Uh, the organization had about 115 people and everything from uh, looking at uh, the legitimacy, uh, the compliance with uh, rules and regulations uh, governing 501c3s non-profit uh, uh, organizations, to putting on conferences, to reaching out, doing um, various um, uh, teaching opportunities. Um, you know, it was the kind of thing where a COO, much like, uh, you know, any other organization, runs the organization for the most part for the, on behalf of the, uh, the uh, higher authority. So that's what I did for nearly uh, five years, uh, and I enjoyed it, uh, made a contribution there, taught me a great deal about uh, what was happening uh, in a, a sphere that I did not know about. And so um, I, uh, I found that uh, very uh, beneficial to the things that uh, I later was able to, again, draw on and, and other things that I was um, you know, called upon to do in my career. That's amazing, sir. You transitioned later on to the National Crime Prevention Council, and we all familiar with the uh, McGroove, the crime dog. How that came about, and what was your, what did the organization do? Yeah, well, uh, I will tell you that uh, McGruff, the crime dog, uh, (laughs) was something that I did. but, but, but I, I, before McGruff, uh, I was actually the, uh, the sergeant-at-arms of the U.S. Okay. Senate. And, and I'm, I'm going to start there because okay, that, good. That, that builds on, that, that performs, that provides a platform uh, 
for the National Crime Prevention Council work. Um, when I left the, um, the Council on Foundations, uh, it was not um, something that I wanted to do at the time, but um, an opportunity came my way, uh, Senator Tom Daschle, uh, when the um, Democratic Party uh, Senate in the Senate um, took back the leadership of the majority of the, uh, of the Senate in um, 2001, um, Tom Daschle reached out to me and offered me the opportunity to be the sergeant at arm. Now, I have to tell you that I didn't know Senator Daschle from, uh, from Adam, <laughs> uh, but um, a number of people who knew me at a time when they were looking for someone who was qualified to be the sergeant at arms, uh, recommended to uh, Senator Daschle that I be the person. My first response was no. And, uh, oh, wow. I, I, well, because quite frankly, I was happy where I was. And it, it meant that I would take a significant pay cut. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well it was about 60%. I lost sixty uh, percent of my salary by going to uh, the uh, uh, the Senate as a sergeant at arms, but um, I was um, persuaded by uh, my family, uh, by uh, uh, significant mentors in my life, uh, by people who I hold in very high regard, because um, in, in accepting the job, I would become the first person of color to hold oh, wow. that job in the history of our country. Uh, so it was uh, 230, I think at the time, 238 years, uh, the history of the country. Then I became the first black sergeant at arms, the first officer in the Congress. And so <laughs> I could, uh, you know, I had enough people saying, if you do this, uh, you don't do this, I'm going to break your leg. I've got a routine. I'm going to be very disappointed in you. And so uh, I did it. Uh, I was appointed on the uh, 4th of uh, uh, September, 2001. And a week later, we were off and running with 9-11. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, I will tell you that uh, a week on the job, I'm evacuating the, uh, the entire capital, U.S. capital. Uh, people are running uh, helter-skelter, getting out of the building because we had uh, United Flight 93. We had intelligence that says that it was uh, en route to the, uh, to the capital, uh, to destroy the capital, and I had to evacuate the building. And so we had members of Congress. We had people from the public uh, who were in the building visiting uh, you know, going on various tours, we had all of the staff um, on Capitol Hill. In addition to that, we also had uh, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the Library of Congress, and other agencies, uh, activities on Capitol Hill that uh, we had to evacuate. And so uh, <laughs> uh, it was pandemonium because no one knew what was going on. Of course, the Pentagon had been hit in addition to the World Trade Center, and so no one knew what was going on. Um, so I found myself uh, seven days into the job orchestrating and uh, 
you know, evacuating people and being in the right place at the right time. And of course, going back to uh, your previous question to me, uh, how does the military develop and train its officers? Well, I was, I was prepared to do it. It's something that I was prepared to do. I understood how to do. Um, I had the right temperament for it. Uh, didn't panic. We did the right things. Unfortunately, at the time, though, I have to tell you that there were no plans in place uh, that uh, you know told people what to do, how to react, where to go. Uh, we since uh, we developed those plans during my tenure there. So there was that was nine eleven on the fifteenth of October. Hold that top, sir. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join us every week for the Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. The Ambassador is host Harry Thomas, and the Chief is host Alex Morales. Together, they bring you different views on today's challenges, from politics to education, security, defense, and the economy. The Ambassador and the Chief, along with their guest experts, outline new perspectives and lively discussions. Tune in to the Spotlight on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back to The Spotlight with General Lanhart. Sir, you were talking about... Your on-the-job training <laughs> uh, when you were the Sergeant R. Uh, please continue. Incredible. Well, you know, it's uh, you know we went through that, uh, got people uh, pretty much uh, calmed down, uh, started putting things in place, uh, providing for the security, uh, pro- uh, providing for evacuation procedures. Um, ensuring that people understood what to do uh, in the time of a, a crisis or evacuation. So uh, that was underway. But on the 15th of October, 2001, we had the anthrax incident. Oh, wow. I which was that the too. largest uh, <laughs> terrorist uh, chemical biological uh, incident in the history of uh, the free world. Uh, at least known incident. And so uh, we had uh, an envelope that was delivered to Senator uh, Daschle's suite, uh, office suite at the Hart uh, Senate office building. It contained uh, two trillion spores of anthrax. 
and the envelope was opened, and uh, those spores um, had uh, had been militarized, as used that term, because uh, it's a, a very sophisticated way of aerosolizing the anthrax, so that um, when that envelope was opened, it looked like smoke pouring out, but in fact, it was two trillion spores of anthrax. Oh, wow. And so, uh, you know, again, my training uh, in the military prepared me for uh, what to do. Uh, My last job, one of my uh, final jobs in the military, I was the commanding general of Fort McClellan, Alabama, which was the home of the military police school and also the home of the chemical school, which uh, provided for training and preparation for biological, chemical, and radiological training uh, for the Army. And uh, there at uh, Fort McClellan, we had uh, the only live agent training in the free world uh, that uh, we use live um, agents uh, for training purposes. So I understood what anthrax was. And so when we had the opportunity to uh, react to that, the first thing we did was close down the uh, HVAC system, the heating, air conditioning, ventilation system to, to prevent the spores from, again, being swept up into the uh, circulation, the air circulation system, and spewed out throughout the complex. And in doing that, we saved uh, a number of uh, contamination uh, that might have uh, occurred uh, had we not done that. Wow. So uh, it took us um, 90, I closed the building um, the same day, October the 15th. Uh, The building contained, by the way, uh, the offices for 50 U.S. senators. And so we had 50 U.S. senators and their staff who were displaced as a result of um, my closing the building. for the purposes of um, securing it and determining what we were going to do about remediating it, cleaning it up. Better than saving their life, better than be dead, sir. (laughs) Well, a number of things we did. Uh, We we gave um, Cipro, which is a uh, antibiotic, um, to uh, any number of people, thousands of people, as a matter of fact, uh, as a prophylactic uh, treatment to prevent uh, anthrax from killing them. Um, again, because of my training at Fort McClellan and my preparation, uh, I knew that 100 spores of anthrax untreated could kill a human, a, uh, an adult, within uh, a week and a half. Oh, well. So we had to respond quickly to prevent that from happening. Um, we went through a process of uh, decontaminating the building. Uh, we went through a process of ensuring that the building was safe, that uh, that building was cleaner, was clean beyond anything uh, that it had been, uh, you know, done before. Uh, we uh, fumigated the entire complex, and 93 days later, we reopened that building and it was cleaner than it had been ever <laughs> the day that it was first uh, opened uh, 
So that was, um, again, uh, another introduction to my job as the uh, sergeant at arms. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I failed to mention to you that this, the job of the sergeant at arms is it's multifaceted. Uh, I've mentioned security and everything I've talked about thus far is security. But the sergeant at arms is also the chief administrator for the entire Senate. And oh. so all of the office space, computers, telephones, uh, typewriters, you, whatever it may be, uh, the television station is run by the sergeant at arms. They know that. Uh, the sergeant at arms is about $750 million on an annual basis. Uh, I had at least um, 850 employees. And so all of those people it made sure that they were providing services and uh, to, the, uh, to the Senate at a time when it needed uh, those services for its operation. The other aspect of the Sergeant at Arms uh, duty uh, position is to act as the principal protocol person receiving heads of state uh, from various parts of the world, uh, the president, vice president of the United States. And so anyone who would come to the complex, it was the sergeant at arms that uh, greeted them and took them to the various places uh, that they needed to uh, meet with uh, members of the Senate. So uh, those three jobs, uh, were very important. Uh, I will mention to you that uh, I'm often asked, was I the guy who, uh, you know, off mentioned or at least uh, announced the president of the United States uh, as he came into the, uh, the chamber? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, I did that, uh, but uh, <laughs> that was the least of the things that we did. Uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was kind of fun because uh, most people, that's what they, they think the sergeant at arms does. Uh, but uh, it, it, it really is a multifaceted, a, a fascinating job. And uh, in recent weeks, you've seen uh, highlighted uh, the Sergeant at Arms job, uh, most notably uh, what was not done on the 6th of January of uh, this year uh, when the uh, insurrection that took place there at the, uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, we could talk about that at some point too. Yeah, please. I'll tell you that uh, the Sergeant at Arms is a key individual in the scheme of things. There is the Sergeant at Arms of the Senate, but there is a counterpart in the House. Now, the House Sergeant at Arms is not nearly as complex and the job is not as married in terms of uh, its function. Uh, they are principally focused on security. So I'll stop there. No, um, well, you know, let's continue a little bit because tonight the President's gonna speak to the nation and uh, which we're excited about to hear him for the first time. But January 6th, uh, we were all shocked and disillusioned, and we want to see a prevention of recurrence. But what were your impressions? How did this happen, and why? Uh, I've asked myself that question a thousand times, a thousand angles. Uh, quite frankly, I don't know. Um, I could tell you that my... My professional opinion is uh, it was a lack of training, a lack of preparation. Uh, people didn't uh, take seriously uh, the business of ensuring that the intelligence was uh, sought after, 
<laughs> and was reacted to, and uh, the planning was um, put in place uh, to prevent that incident that took place on the 6th of January. It's unfortunate, but uh, a lot of people did not do their job. And the training that certainly uh, we undertook when I was there 20 years ago uh, was not being followed. And uh, the equipment that we had put in place and made sure that the Capitol Police were provided, outfitted with, uh, was not used. And I watched the photos of that. I saw police officers who were in soft caps as opposed to having their uh, riot gear on. Uh, I saw um, officers uh, not react in a way that uh, certainly would have uh, controlled the crowd. Uh, they turned their backs on them, moving up the stairs, running up the stairs, and not uh, exercising uh, things that uh, they should have been trained to do as we had trained 20 years ago to ensure would never happen. And again, I reflect back on what took place on the 11th of September, 2001, and the pandemonium that we saw. Uh, we trained the Capitol Police not to react in a way that was um, in a manner that would add to uh, uh, the uh, conflict or the, uh, the commotion and the, uh, uh, the only word I can come to mind is pandemonium. Uh, police officers had to quell that, had to control that, had to do the right thing, had to put people in a frame of mind that their safety was uppermost in everyone's mind. And that was the one thing that you know, I saw on the, the 6th of January, which was not at all I was followed and not at all um, you know, in evidence. I was shot that the only one shot was fired. You know, yeah. it's not like we want people to get hurt, but in, under that circumstance, nobody draw their weapon and shoot, which is incredible. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, uh, again, I go back to training. And so it was obvious to me that things like uh, rules of engagement in terms of how to engage the public and how to use various uh, levels of uh, you know, use of force were not followed. And um, you know, rules of uh, engagement, uh, the first uh, rule is uh, voice command. And then you escalate from that point on, going up. And so I didn't see that. But again, yeah. it was training. Yeah. People turned their backs, police officers turned their backs, they ran, and uh, they acted in a way that, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, did not uh, you know, control the situation. I will tell you, though, in the next breath, there were officers who, who acted profoundly professional, who, who did an excellent job, who saved much of the, uh, the capital from uh, severe damage, um, and who undoubtedly saved lives. Yeah. Um, but uh, I will tell you that, um, again, um, it was not what I uh, certainly would have expected, and I was disappointed that it happened, but uh, you know, we learned from it, and I hope that things are being done in place now, put in place to, to prevent that kind of thing from happening, and so we'll see where we are from there. Hey, sir, we, we got three more minutes, but we wanted, I want to cover that you were selected to be the ambassador of Tanzania 
being that I visited Zanzibar, I <laughs> like Tanzania. <laughs> uh, can you please just quickly in the last three minutes talk about how was that process and uh, how would you were selected to the ambassador of Tanzania, please? Yeah, my, 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 my selection uh, to uh, be the ambassador of the Tanzania as, uh, came about because um, President Obama, he nominated me to, to be the ambassador at the Tanzania. I, of course, knew President uh, then Senator Obama when he was in the Senate and uh, had a, uh, a connection with him there. Uh, he knew who I was. Um, he called on me as, uh, as a uh, senator uh, to help him understand what was happening in the military. He was on the Armed Services Committee. I uh, put him in contact with a number of senior officers on some very key issues, everything from uh, head injuries to veterans administration, how was uh, uh, soldiers and veterans being treated. Uh, Senator Obama was very instrumental in doing a number of things to help uh, veterans. And so I, uh, I was, um, again, uh, confirmed to be the senator, uh, correction, the, uh, the ambassador to Tanzania. And I had a great tour there, spent four years in Tanzania, uh, made a number of, uh, you know, significant contributions there. Um, it was a, a fun assignment, uh, but I will tell you that, um, you know, the people of uh, Tanzania, are beautiful people, and they were most welcoming. And the State Department does a wonderful job of uh, ensuring that uh, our country is represented around the world. Harry, thank you very much, sir. Harry, take us out, please. Al, thank you for this. It's been enlightening. Uh, we won't be able to watch tonight without thinking about you. <laughs> and uh, what an impressive and inspirational career. Um, we admire you tremendously. Also, for me being from Harlem and Alex being a retired Army I officer. Didn't know that. Yep. Oh. And, <laughs> and, and Alex is a retired Army officer, so we're oh, both uh, we're both hey, impressed. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Listen, I uh, I thank you for the opportunity. I apologize because I there's so much. And, oh, appreciate uh, it. Well, we'll have you back again. Well, we'll do. Okay. We'll if do. I, if no, I'm serious. Way, I'll do that. No, I'm well, serious. And this was the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.